Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 34th episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my best friend and other co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, what are you most looking forward to about the Outsider set that we perfectly called and have uh, perfectly mastered at this point in time now as well, I'm assuming? Perfectly mastered Outsiders? Yeah, we already know draft pick orders and stuff like that, I assume. Yeah. I am really excited for both a new CC meta where there will be several new heroes to solve or figure out. And I'm also really excited to have a new draft format. I think while Dynasty was, in my opinion, a solid a solid set for a supplemental set, supplemental sets kind of suck compared to full sets. You don't get new heroes. You don't get a draft. I'm really excited. We got a new hero in the last supplemental set. What are you talking about? And we got a new hero in the last, last supplemental set too. You don't get real. We got two new. Heroes. Oh. We got three new heroes, four new heroes, and, and Everfest. You get one adult hero usually, I guess. The last two supplemental sets have had one adult hero. You were, no, we have had Genus. That's the Genus, the Merchant. Um, I guess Valda's a young have hero. Health. Genus has twenty. He doesn't. Oh, he's a young guy. He's an old young guy. Um. I guess it's kind of like old, young, old, and still old too. How could they have ever made a young old? You know, young. These are the real questions that Alice asked needs to answer. Because if you just had adult old time and limited, it would not be a thing you could do. Yeah, but then if he's not old time anymore, he's just Heim, right? He should have just been young, young Heim. Heim. Yeah. What are you most excited for about a? outsiders uh i'm most excited for the dual class cards and seeing all of the interesting ways that they're going to start hybridizing uh the class combinations eventually if they continue down this path there'll be some really sweet like combinations and things that will be more and more opened up for the existing heroes as well as heroes in the future. So I guess like, interestingly, in the future, every assassin hero will have got access to these assassin ranger cards and every ranger will have access to these assassin ranger cards. So it's just like really interesting ways for helping out different class card pools. And I'm interested to see how they're going to like find the commonalities between the two classes and push them. Because that was what was really interesting about magic dual cards when they started like doing two colors, three colors, stuff like that, is you would find like the common elements between like one color and another color, or even in like enemy colors, they're called like colors that are supposed to be opposites, like red and blue usually focus on like spells matter kind of things. So it'll be interesting to find like, well, what do like warriors and wizards care about? Yeah, what, I don't know. what's the overlap? Not that they're in the next set, but eventually. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. I also think it's pretty cool talking about these dual cards. Is It gives you... It does a lot to expand the card pool and make draft and make drafting pretty good. Like, in Welcome to Wraith, we had a bunch of generics that made the draft format good, and then in Aria, we had these, like, typed cards that made the draft format really good, where you could, like, take an ice card and it would work in two heroes that were, like, close to generics but not quite because they work at like two-thirds the decks and this format seems really similar with these hybrid cards they'll work in two-thirds the decks i'm very excited for limited 
I would say almost everything on our Outsiders Limited wish list is going to come true. So um, LSS, if you ever need good designers, you know how to get in touch. I guess speaking of design, though, so our main topic today comes at a request of one of our patrons, and a lot last month we spent a lot of time focusing on like values of cards and trying to ensure that you maximize the value. And obviously, with attacks, defense reactions, attack reactions, the cards that are just genuine like numbers that are pretty straightforward to evaluate, but. They asked us to kind of look at some of the more unique heroes, their um, abilities in their card pools as to like why their value might not quite be there at the moment and how you should be evaluating them as they're currently designed. So that's going to be what Michael and I are going to be putting together today. So if you are not a fan of Reinar, Grinthia, or Dromai, I'm sorry, I don't think this podcast is going to be uh, for you. Well, I think kind of walking through how we evaluate value on these three heroes will also kind of give you hopefully a better framework for evaluating trickier spots. I'm hoping. Okay. So even if you're not a fan of Reiner, Doromeyer, Dorinthia, this podcast is for you. <laughs> yeah. If you like one of those three heroes or fab math. You don't like one of those three heroes. You either do. way. It's great. Okay. It's a okay. great podcast episode. So, so do you want to start with first, Michael? Let's start with Dorinthia. So Dorinthia has a couple things that make her cards not always consistent in value. So when you attack with your Dorinthia cards, several, like, if you have, like, a blue plus a Warrior's Valor, and you pitch your blue to play Warrior's Valor, attack with Dawnblade for six. If the Dawnblade hits, it gains both go again, and it also gets Dorinthia's ability will trigger to let you attack again. So if you get that hit, you get attacked for three more also. The first kind of question mark in evaluating Dorinthia's card value is, does, is the Dawnblade hitting with the first attack? If it has, uh, because if it has go again, you really need to hit for Dorinthia's ability. And there's also these cards that are conditional go again. When I'm trying to look at a Dorinthia hand and evaluate it, I want to calculate how much value I'm going to get if the Dawnblade doesn't hit, if they just block it out, and how much value it's going to get if it does hit. So with that example with Warrior's Valor, you get nine if the first Dawnblade attack hits the first attack for six, you'll get three more for nine. And if it gets blocked, you'll get six points of value. And that's kind of where you start from. And then you want to try to figure out what the chance of it being blocked are versus the chance of it being not blocked are. So if you know this attack is never hitting, this first attack for six, then it's not super valuable to keep these two cards because spending two cards for six points of damage, two cards in action point for six points of damage is not great. And if your opponent is a deck with all block threes that is happy to block and you don't have a way to push that first attack over, then you know you're just going to get the six points of value if you attack with it. You might as well block, or you could also just block with the two cards to save six life. I think a lot of what you've just discussed, though, is kind of what the cards are on their face, but a lot of the warrior cards are dependent on what your opponent does, I guess. In Magic, we call them Punisher effects, where your opponent gets to decide whether or not you get the full value of the card. Basically, if your opponent doesn't block, 
and you have a reprise card in your hand, like Iron Song response most infamously, you have a card that does nothing. And so how do you evaluate a card? Is that is Iron Song response line worth 1.5 when you attack with it? Or I guess, like, do you want to go into that? Yeah, so I wouldn't value it at 1.5. Most opponents, you they're either like more likely to block or less likely to block. Like if you're playing against Phi who really doesn't want to block, then a lot of the time your Iron Song response won't be turned on because they're blocking or any of your reprise effects won't be turned on because a deck like Phi isn't going to block you that often. Whereas against a deck like Oldheim, you might expect them to block almost every turn because Oldheim is just naturally pretty defensive and has a lot of three blocks and usually cannot use four or five card hands super effectively on offense. So generally Oldheim is inclined to block with some cards. So you want to... So it's worth zero versus five and three versus Oldheim? Well, it's basically worth three when it's turned on and it's worth zero when it's not turned on. So you want to know how likely they are to block or not block and that'll kind of like so it's worth 2.67 versus oldheim and 0.33 versus phi <laughs> when you factor in their likelihood of percentage to block it's it's either worth three or zero but you want to try to make an educated guess on which one it'll be when both deck building and choosing how to sequence your blocks and your attacks on your turn so i think the best way to look at it all is when you're attacking with Dawnblade, you kind of have like like a four real possibilities of what could happen. Either it could miss, like they could block it out and reprise could be turned on. It could hit and reprise could be turned on. Or reprise could not be turned on and it hits, or reprise not turned on and it miss or it gets blocked. And usually reprise usually if it's blocked out, reprise will be turned on. So that one where it's blocked out and reprise is not turned on. That only really happens if they have a defense reactant arsenal or they have a lot of armor. So that one's like one you can, I don't want to say rule out, but like be very aware or try to like figure out how they can do that if you're, that's something you're worried about. And then of those four possibilities, you kind of- Or if they have like an enchanting melody in play, right? The very playable good card enchanting melody. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they could have, I I don't know how I forgot about that card. It's such a commonly played card. It's such a powerful effect. All over the meta right now, so it's okay. I think every enchanting melody I've seen in a tournament has been in one of your decks. <laughs> I'm just a genius innovator then at that point, then I guess. Mm-hmm. Ahead of the curve. So <laughs> But uh the I guess the value of your cards, you can add up what it'll be in each of these cases, and when you actually go to play your turn one of those four cases will be what actually happens. And you'll see what the value is on your turn when you actually play your cards. But you basically try to predict which case it'll be with Dorinthia. It's not really like your cards are ever worth like fractions of value. It's either you just won't know which which condition or which how your opponent will react until you attack. And that's part of why part of why Dorinthia struggles against players that know Dorinthia really well is they can generally block in a way to prevent your cards from getting maximum value and put you in spots where you don't, there isn't really a good way to get maximum value out of all of your cards because they have a lot of control over which of these four scenarios happens. I guess 
from like a design perspective, all attack reactions kind of have a point usually shaved off, right? And I guess from that perspective, when we were just also discussing like attack reactions, since it's like they consider it unblockable damage since it can only be stopped by like prevention effects or uh, defense reaction at that point. So does that lead to some inefficiencies in the damage output of Dorinthi in that case then? Yeah. When the attack reaction damage isn't really worth much. It does. But specific matchups, I guess. Since the on hit of Dawnblade hitting is so powerful, I guess, like getting to attack again, if you go like, if you pitch a blue and play Red Warriors Valor and attack with your Dawnblade and it doesn't get blocked, and you attack again and it doesn't get blocked. You're getting a two card for nine. And then I guess the last thing about Dorinthia that we didn't really talk about is plus one counters. But you're, you're spending two cards for nine damage and you're getting a plus one counter on the, the Dawnblade, which is worth at least one damage the following turn and potentially more. So because of that, like the, these attack reactions that kind of push through, push damage over that your opponent can't block, you kind of like get to see how they block before you play the defense re- or the attack reactions like if they over block by three you just don't play your iron song response you can arsenal or, or whatever and they get stuck in your arsenal the whole game and then you never get another chance to play it yeah i've, I've played right the it, it happens it happens sometimes sometimes your iron song response is in your arsenal for the whole game and you die but you know mm-hmm. part of why dory's not yeah, great easy the damage being something that your opponent can't block with normal cards is why they are usually kind of inefficient. Iron Song response, zero for three, doesn't cost an action point. That's, it's at rate if the, the reprise is turned on. And if the reprise is not turned on, it's worth zero, which is useless. Right, yeah. But then how, how do they justify then a card like Sharpen Steel? Because that's just always a zero for three, but that's like uh non-attack action that your opponent has full information beforehand. So... That's kind of the frustrating thing I would think about Warriors non-attack actions is before Glistening Steel Blade, I felt like they were kind of priced inappropriately to a certain degree as well. I guess trying to... The common saying is that they are already factoring Dawnblade having a plus one counter or your weapon already being pumped or maybe there's a future super scary weapon that needed to nerf all of these non-attack actions beforehand. But... That's just something that I don't really buy, given that like it's just so below rate most of the time with these non attack actions. Sure, sharpen steel is a zero for three, right? Or zero give your weapon plus three. Yeah, zero for three. Blocks three. Mm-hmm. So that's not really below rate because the rate you're expecting is three points per card plus one for your action point. So trading a card for three points of damage, that's at rate when it's not costing your action point. I thought that was at rate for limited, but not for constructed. At limited, you want to it, go, or in constructed, you want to go higher. Yeah, like that. That is at rate, and then in constructed, you want to do things that are above rate because that's kind of the power level of the constructed format. Is if everyone's just playing at rate, then like there, there's cards that go above rate, and that's what we talk about with like zero for fours with go again or yeah. So I consider zero for four or go again the class constructed power level rate. Okay, I, I would say I would say that's above rate. If you get seventeen points of value out of your hand, then you're you're doing out of a four card hand. That's that's reasonably above rate. I would say. How are you getting seventeen out of four fours? Well, you get your action points though. Your action points worth one. I guess. I'm not really satisfied with where we're leaving things. Okay. But let, let let's talk some more. What what are you not satisfied with? So I I guess ultimately, 
what I was trying to get at there, or maybe I said, was that the reason that Dorinthia struggles at like getting the Michael Hamilton rate most of the time is because, like I was saying, is that the attack reactions are priced at a premium because it's unblockable damage, and the warrior non-attack actions are all tucked down a peg in power level because their power level is going to be associated with whatever weapon is uh, getting the buff from the non-attack action. So in both cases, the cards are under rate because they're assuming that the weapon or the hero ability or something else is going to then pick them back up to be about where the card should be for a constructed level card. What winds up happening though is that people actually play the game of flesh and blood in a way that they will minimize the impact of your non-attack actions and attack reactions and when that happens you're not actually getting the bonuses that they might have actually intended you to get for these attack reactions or non-attack actions and i think that's what hurts dorinthia specifically the most as far as like what her playability and power level is at this point in time it's just that I guess like even before like Glistening Steel Blade and Glistening Steel Blade so good is because it just carries those plus one plus one counters for so many future turns or threatens to that it becomes untenable for your opponent to even be able to start mitigating your cards. But at just their default rate and Dawn Blade at three power, it's usually pretty easy to manage for most decks in the format. Anything that I said that's controversial or you disagree with? I, I do still disagree with like and I, I think sharpened steel is on below, right? Like if you look at cards that are zero for four that don't take your action points to zero for four with go again. If you look at most of them are like Soaring Gloomvale and Rebel and Moonblood are both very conditional. Even Scar for Scar is conditional, Ravenous Rebel is conditional. All these things that are zero for fours with go again are conditional cards. And sharpened steel's condition is you attack with a weapon. <laughs> so not really conditional. And you look at like even like nimbleism is another example of like it's kind of like the same rate as sharpened steel or zero for three i guess that's fair but i guess when you're playing nimbleism getting the zero the plus three power that can be tied to any attack action in the future or history of the game that can be buffed by it whereas weapons so that means a bunch of odd hit effects that can potentially go through because of that and uh, other cascading effects that happen because of those attacks getting powered or buffed or something like that. Whereas weapons don't really have the same value from getting buffed at this point in time as actions. And it would take a lot uh, for a weapon to be as good as I guess like attack actions are getting buffed in order to justify their rate. And I don't know that Dawnblade is at that level. Yeah, that's that's probably true. That's why cards like Glistening, Glistening Steel Blade are good, I guess. It's because Dawnblade's on hit isn't good enough by itself. But when you put Glistening Steel Blade in the deck and suddenly you're getting a plus one counter on your weapon every time it hits this turn, then now, now suddenly that on hit is worth a ton of damage over the course of the game. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I guess if we just even think about it, like even if Dawnblade was just naturally like four power, we'll say, I think then giving it all of like the plus three effects perfectly fine like i don't I, I wouldn't want there to be effects that are you know higher power i guess it's like where do you want the power level of the cards to to 
rest maybe ultimately is like the argument to be made do you want it to rest in like the non-attack like the, the cards that are played in the deck or do you want it to rest on like the power level of the equipment themselves and maybe it's just easier to manage the equipment from like a design perspective because there's just not usually a lot of like weapons per class and they will rotate with their respective heroes like eventually Dawnblade just won't even be playable Dorinthia is the only warrior that can play uh or Bolton can technically but without Dorinthia's hero ability Dawnblade's atrocious so I don't know there's just a lot to consider I guess and I guess maybe ultimately my gripe is that I'm just underwhelmed with all of the current options for warrior weapons so I, I think Dawnblade is reasonably powerful one cost for three damage is one point short of Rosetta Thorn but it does have this like nice ability where if you hit with it twice you get that plus one counter and Dorinthia can make it hit twice so like there is there is some value there it's not like a bad weapon per se but it's just sure but if we factor in the premium of arcane damage where arcane, where arcane damage is usually put at a premium like Rosetta Thorn's not just one for four it's like one for four plus plus because it's also spread across two instances of the two damage so yeah i i think i think it i don't think Domblade and rosetta thorn are even like remotely close in terms of like power level yeah it's but that's not saying much because i think rosetta thorn's broken <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah one one point of value is a lot and you you mentioned this like premium for arcane damage but it's weird because Runeblades have never paid the premium for their arcane damage. Wizards always pay it. Wizards are like, if I want to deal three three arcane damage, it's going to take my action point and a full card. Whereas Runeblades, like, they have like uh, Vexing Malice and Arcanic Crackle that are just like outrate cards that some of the damage is arcane damage. Um, there's one from Arya, the one for four that deals one arcane damage also. I guess the I guess the reason why that is like I think the one ping of arcane damage is never put at a premium because the requirements to putting AB1 in your package in order to mitigate that arcane damage and the requirements putting like AB5 for your deck requirements in deck space are a lot different. And I guess that's also then what makes Red Side of the Thorn especially egregious as most people are just bringing AB1 into you know these room blade matchups and then here's Rosetta Thorn saying like actually I have two arcane damage and it's like I'm not bringing our AB2 for Rosetta Thorn like okay you got me you know yeah yeah we we can definitely talk about room blade design for a while I think there's a lot of stuff going on there that isn't always isn't necessarily the best but I'm not sure it's okay they're not going to make room blades anymore they haven't been a room blades in like what three whole sets now that's what a long time buddy Briar is gonna living legend and people and then they're gonna be like we need a new rune blade i don't have any rune blades that are playable because viscera is gonna lose rosetta thorn which should have not been should have been elemental anyway but anyway <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's talk about rhinar <laughs> yeah let's talk about rhinar so i think rhinar actually isn't uh there's not a lot of weird things in rhinar the biggest thing is the value of intimidate there's two ways that Intimidate can generate value. If your opponent just wasn't going to block you anyway and was just going to use their whole hand offensively, Intimidate literally isn't doing anything. Because if they were planning to say no blocks, if you Intimidate their hand, they're still just going to say no blocks. So and the value of Intimidate really only comes in when, A, it's either turn zero and uh, you they were going to block because it's turn zero, or 
it's pushing lethal, making them unable to block when you actually kill them. So like the start and the end of the game. And then the other spot that it is useful is when you're making your opponents turn less efficient. If you look at like, for example, an old time hand, and let's say you have three, three blocks and an ice card. And the way you want to use your hand is block with the three, three blocks and pitch your ice card to attack with burn as well. Pretty typical old time play pattern. If you intimidate two of the these three blocks, now the old time can block with one of the three blocks, but one that's left. And then they can either block with their ice card or or like whatever they do with the other three cards. Now they have to like recalculate their hand to use those cards. So like maybe their new best play is attack with this uh, six for eight that got intimidated away so they can pitch two blues and attack for eight and block for three. So a total value of 11. Whereas if they got to use their hand the way they wanted to, they would block with three, three blocks for nine and then attack with winner's will for four. So that'd be 13. So in that scenario, you are reducing the value of the old Heim's hand by two because you intimidated in a way that made him unable to block in an efficient way. So the issue with Reinar is that uh, the most common way he generates intimidate is that he has to discard a card with six or more power. And in your example, if your value of your intimidate is worth two, you've then just traded a card for a value of two. And that does not seem worth it. Even in the situation that seems like the best case scenario for him in this instance. So I guess you want to talk about like how that value could be made up in other ways then in those kinds of matchups or what's happening there. Yeah. So I guess if you look at the, so to figure out what the value of the card you're discarding is, you actually have to look at the cards you're playing because discard is usually an additional cost to play the card. If you look at like mm-hmm. alpha rampage, you have to discard to play alpha rampage, right? thinking of the right card yeah okay three for nine discard a card yeah okay so if you look at alpha rampage you're paying two cards as the cost for you're paying the three cost to play and the card you have to discard and then plus the alpha rampage itself so three cards and your action point and you're getting two intimidates and nine damage basically so if you look at it just like uh, if you ignore the intimidates, you're spending three cards and your action point for nine damage, which is slightly below rate because we're looking for, below rate. Yeah, we're looking for each card to be worth three and your action point to be worth one. So three cards plus an action point should be worth ten. So these these two intimidates you're getting out of it, they need to make up that one point of value to get two rate. And ideally, for again for classic constructed play, you want to be above that rate because otherwise your deck's just We'll be able to beat draft decks, and that's about it. Because every constructed deck's doing something above rate for the most part. So if Except for Bolt. Even Bolton, even Bolton can usually beat 13 a turn cycle. Limit Ascension is, is a real card. Sorry, I was just memeing. Go, go. Via the Vanguard. Yeah, I was also. Memeing. It's okay. So mm-hmm. we're not we're not talking about Bolton though. Right. <laughs> so these you you can kind of value the Intimidate based on how much it reduces the value of your opponent's hand, and you kind of compare that, to, or that's kind of just how you figure out the value of your Alpha Rampage. This Intimidate, if it's if the Intimidate reduces your opponent's hand value by 1, then this Alpha Rampage is worth 10. If it reduces their hand value by 2, it was worth 11. So let's say, though, I rolled Scapskin Leathers on this turn, and I have two action points, and then I follow up the Alpha Rampage with a swing of uh, Club for 5. Does that mean that Alpha Rampage's val the the intimidate 
triggers off of Alpha Rampage need to get less value since I'm not necessarily giving up like my only action point to do this anymore. So it's kind of tricky because club like uh, or scab skin specifically, you're taking this risk to generate additional action points. So when you roll the two yeah, gamblers club, there's no risk. When you roll the two action points on Scabskin Leathers, like you're only rolling them if you can get value out of additional action points because you otherwise you're just like waste risking ruin for no value. So at that point you can you kind of have to evaluate the whole hand together where you're playing Alpha Rampage and you're playing and you're attacking with club, so you're spending four total cards for 14 damage and you're still getting these two intimidate triggers. Right? Because you Play the Alpha Rampage, yeah. and then you swing club. It's nine plus five. Yeah. So you kind of... 14. I think, Checks out. <laughs> I think you just have to evaluate it as like... Is it the difference between the scap skins hitting and not hitting? Is it so? Is it is, is it the independent values of scap skin rolling zero, one, and two, and three, and four, and five, and six? And then you have to evaluate all those different percentages, weigh them in, carry the derivative forward to the alpha rampage and then we got the value right yeah so did i do it right do i, I do how many decimal points did i round to the scabskins roll is actually something completely separate from the alpha rampage so if you look at your hand and you want to calculate the value of it if you have one action point if you have two action points if you have three action points and if you have zero action points and you know you can pretty reasonably know that rolling scabskins your one and six to get zero action points, two and six to get one action point, two and six to get two action points, and one and six to get three action points. So you can see what the value of your hand is in the different possible outcomes of rolling different values on the scabskin leathers. And basically you want to take probably the average outcome, which is weighted by the chance of getting each outcome. And that's like, what your hand's worth if you don't block and then compare that to if you do block what the average value would be if you just use your hand maybe you don't roll scap skins and your average is just whatever it would be instead of taking an average because you recommend brute players start bringing out graphing paper with them then to start calculating out all these values in real time so i don't think you're allowed to do that but honestly when you're going through your replays you you should actually take some time to do the math on what the expected value of these different hands are with different scapskin leather rolls. And then when you have similar hands in the tournaments or even the same hand, then you can just, you, you'll just know what the right line is because you did the work beforehand, basically, because you, you won't have time to do all of this in the, in a tournament. It takes a while to do scapskin math. I was just thinking, I was like, is there rules in flesh and blood against doing math at the table? And like, it's like, cause I know there's like rules on like what you can and like, you can't write down your opponent's like pitch stack and stuff like that. There's, there's rules on notes and stuff like that. I thought you were specifically talking about a rule that says like, you can't do long division or like stats on a piece of paper at the table. You were just talking about like time. And I was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't actually know what the note taking rules are. I could see if you're doing like math or like complicated math on your thing, you're like, okay, one in six times 13 damage and then two in six times. 12 damage like if you're doing that on the side <laughs> I, I can see 
that's not being allowed for reasons outside of time reasons. I don't know what you're allowed to what you're allowed to write down that falls under note taking because I don't know. I'd have to look into the rules on note taking because I know you're allowed to write your opponents. You gotta name, call Josh Scott write, up. You're allowed to write write who goes first, and you can write life totals. But can you write what else? Can you write on a piece of paper while you're playing? I don't actually know. Can you uh, write down your digits next time we're playing so I can call you next time, baby? You already have my number. Oh, yeah, that's right. I can't wait very well. <laughs> Anyways, any final concluding thoughts on, on uh, Ruth, Brutes, and Reinar then? I feel like... Uh, I don't know if we've cleared anything up, but we sure talked about Brute a lot. <laughs> so... There's a couple other cards that I'll touch on because Reiner has a couple of cards that are like a little bit complicated, I guess. Not super complicated, but like there's definitely some evaluations. So Barraging Beatdown is a card that we've already we already know how to get figure out the value of the Intimidate from Barraging Beatdown. And then basically it has the two cases of they block with two or more cards to turn off the plus power ability or they don't. And you can kind you can kind of similar to Dorinthia, you can figure out what the value is if they do block with two cards versus what the value is if they don't block with two cards, and kind of go from there about figuring out how much value it'll likely be if you play it. And then you know if they block with two cards, it's worth zero value. Or if you're using barrage a single barrage beat out on a weapon like a, a claw, then you threatening this extra damage means that they block with two cards. They're probably over blocking the base value of three on the claw. So you're getting a little bit of extra value there too. If that makes sense. I guess it makes sense. I still have no idea for the man who tells people to just look at the value of the hands and get the value. You there's still, I feel like you just throw around the word value. Okay. This definition a lot. It's like, I, okay. So if I cast barraging beat down and then I attack you with, a. Uh, uh, romp, not romping claw. What's the claw called? Mandible claw. If I cast red barrage and be down and attack with mandible claw, then I'm attacking for either seven or three. So if you block with no cards, I'm getting seven points of value. If you block with two cards, then you're going to block the entire damage, but you're spending two cards on it. So Basically, like this barrage. Are you getting three value then? Are you getting the? Would you consider the over block your positive value? Yes, I think that's a simple because it's negative value for your opponent to look at it. Yeah, because your opponent now has to over block because they can't cover up all the damage with just a three block. So their second card, if they block with two cards, is basically covering up the barraging beatdown plus. So are they getting plus value out of their hand then? Because that means their cards technically where one card is blocking four. The second card, or is it or is it in between that? Is it is it is it getting a value of two because it's the difference between zero and four? It's or not the, the difference between zero and four. There's no averages. You don't you don't split it. So basically barraging beatdown is I guess the barraging beatdown is worth whatever. Again, whatever your opponent's hand would have been if they didn't block with the two cards minus the... But why are we evaluating Barraging Beatdown like this, where it's just like, Barraging Beatdown is this card that's like 0 for 4, which is like our most go-to thing in like Flesh and Blood so far. Mm -hmm. And 
we don't say, well, the zero horror is worth whatever the difference is between whether or not your opponent blocks with it, doesn't block with it, or block or like covers it all up. It's just like browsing beatdown is either worth it's always worth four, but what you're doing is you're allowing your opponent to get extra value out of their hand by uh, committing the second card. So I, I, I was actually wrong when I said it was negative value for your opponent. It's actually still positive value for your opponent. You're you're actually increasing the value of their second card blocking for three to a second card blocking for four instead. Okay, yeah, that that's that is a good way to word that and a good way to look at it. I agree. That's much better than whatever I was trying to say. Okay. So look at that. I'm learning. You're teaching me this whole way through. <laughs> you could even teach a big dum dum like me along the way. So so the last Reinar card that I want to talk about is Blood Rush Bellow because it's like a card that usually is responsible for some pretty good turns, but it's pretty hard to figure out the exact value of it. The only real way that you can evaluate it is after you play and finish resolving the card, you can kind of count up how much damage you did that turn. So maybe you spend four cards for 19 damage or three cards for 15 damage or something like that. And you won't be able to know how much damage you're going to get from your Blood Rush Bellow turn before you play the card because you're going to draw two random cards and those two random cards are like a very big part of how much damage you you get. If you get at least a single blue to swing both claws and do something else, that's probably going to be a better turn than if you just draw two more reds and you can't really use your hand super effectively. So there's some unknowns when you play Blood Rush Bellow, but yeah, it's usually pretty strong. The only real way to know the total value or the average value of it would be running the simulation thousands of times and seeing what value you got out of your Blood Rush Bellow hands over all those games. But in general, it's usually Blood Rush Bellow turns are usually above rate, so you usually want to do what you can to play it. Go. So are they above rate? Because you have to think about it. Like, well, let me hit you with this. Okay. You're spending a card to pitch. Mm-hmm. Spending a card to discard. Mm-hmm. So you have two cards. And then, so that means... Oh, you're spending a card to play. So you're spending three cards. Three cards here so far. You're getting two back. So that means you've spent one card. So that means you need to attack two times in order to, for it to be at rate, because then you'll have used one card for four, right? So... You aren't spending three cards. If you pitch a blue to play it, you're spending the two cards, the card that you play, plus the card that you discard, and then one third of the, the last card, because you're only spending one of the three resources, if you can use the three res- all three of the I, resources. I need, I need to go back and watch some of our episodes. I feel like this is a sneaky thing you do, where sometimes a pitch is a card, and sometimes a pitch isn't a card, and sometimes a blue's a card, and sometimes a blue isn't a card, and sometimes a yellow's a card, but it's also not a card, but it's not an efficient card. And it's just like, I feel like there's all of these little sneaky things that you restate the same thing just slightly enough to fit whatever context you need. I'm not sure about it. I need to go back and watch these things, but I, I just have this feeling that like, when I say it's a card, you're like, no, 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 it's not a card. It's a fraction of a resource. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, this is a fraction of a resource. You're like, no, 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 no. That's a card. And I'm like, so what? Why do I always get it wrong? Why am I always the dumb, dumb, Michael? The, it matters if you're going to be able to spend your other resources or not. If you pitch a card to play a one cost thing that also costs your action point, 
then you're going to not be able to do anything with those two extra resources. So you're spending two cards for it. Like, I guess the most common example is you pitch a card to play Command and Conquer. You're spending two cards for six points of damage. And a lot of the time you're pitching a blue and wasting one resource. But since you can't spend that resource on anything, then you're just spending two cards for six damage. Whereas if you play something with Go Again, like this Blood Rush Bellow, then you have those two resources floating. And you already know you're going to have a claw that you could use to spend these two resources on. Plus, whatever you draw, you can also spend these resources towards. So, you're not, like, they're not wasted because your action point's not going away. You're still going to have an action point, so you'll be able to spend the two resources. I'll let, that, I'll let it slide for now. Like I said, I'm going to go back to the tapes. I'm going to review. I'm going to study hard. I'm going to take notes. And I'm going to come back with factual lawyer-based evidence Fuck. in order to make my case next time. But So you better watch out, buddy. Yeah, fi- find my contradictions. Alright, ready to move on from right Phoenix there. Wright, your ass. It's been a while since I played a Phoenix Wright game. Yeah, but we can talk about Dromai now, that's fine. Alright. So, Dromai has two kind of question marks. So, the first one is the value of an ash, and the second one's going to be value of a dragon. So I think the value of an ash kind of has to be tied to the value of a dragon because ash by itself, it's not doing anything. Like if you take old time and you're like, well, now you get, you have this card that makes 30 ash, then it doesn't do anything because ash don't do anything by themselves. So the way that you calculate the value of a dragon is basically how much it attacks for and how much damage they use, they need to use to clear or they end up using to clear it so uh and the easy ex- example is probably something like mirror guy if you play a mirror guy and you attack with it you get two damage and then you need to send four damage back to kill it so mirror guy if you if you play mirror guy and attack with it you do two damage and then on their turn they spend they send a four power attack at it and kill it then you got six points of value out of it because you attacked for two and then it prevented four damage that you would have taken. Okay, I'm on board. There there are some things that are added to make that more complicated, but that's kind of a good base point is you're getting your six points of value there. So that's how much value you get for the card. And then the cost of playing Mirror Guy is first you need the full card, the Invoke Mirror Guy card. You need an Ash to put under the Mirror Guy because you can't cast the Mirror Guy without an Ash. And then you need that one resource to pay for the Mirror Guy. So figuring out how you're getting those the resource and the ash the ash is like the weird question mark because it's not a normal resource that um everyone has access to. you said it you did the thing you've been you've been waiting for the you you avoided my trap card which was going to be i thought we discussed this before i think it was just a discord message i don't think it was in like uh person where somebody asked like what the value of like an ash is and I thought we both came to the consensus that it's just an alternative resource. And it's almost like, imagine like uh, you pitch a card. I guess we don't have to imagine. It's what Dromaimo does most of the time, where a red pitches for the one resource and the one dragon resource. And this dragon resource, instead of going away at the end of your turn and losing it, this dragon resource just gets to sit there on the battlefield being a dragon resource. And it's worth nothing if you just like any other resource, if you never use it. But once you use it, it is then a, it, it 
realizes its resource value and then can be counted towards a point of value, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Cool. So, I guess... Because I, I think that's the most succinct way to describe Ash. Mm-hmm. They're just an alternative resource that don't accrue any value until they are actualized into a dragon. Yeah, so when you're playing Dromai, you pitch, when you pitch a red, you get one regular resource and you get one of these dragon resources that you were talking about. And that dragon resource is worth something, assuming you convert it into a dragon or do something productive with it. But if you end the game with five ash in play, those five ash were useless. They weren't. They did not generate any value when you pitched those five reds. Then to make those five ash or however you made them, you didn't. Those those for five extra, basically wasted resources. Resources you did not use efficiently. So. Yeah, but to that end, though, I would say that you look at the dragon cards and the resources used to cast them independently at that point. So basically like a card like Sweeping Blow. So it's one for three that gets you uh, dragon resource, as we're saying. So if you go, if you just cast a Sweeping Blow um, and never make a dragon the whole game, you got three points of value out of that card. However, is if you attack with Sweeping Blow and then you immediately make a dragon with it, Sweeping Blow is then worth four. But then you don't count that one extra resource as like value gained or lost from the dragon itself. Whatever life or damage it's dealt should be calculated independent of that ash, right? So it should then just be counted to however much value like the dragon itself gets. So with with our mirror guy example, you're saying that like we're saying mirror guy was worth six if it attacks for two and then gets attacked back for four. So this ash that yeah. you're using to create mirror guy, if you're using this ash on mirror guy, that's kind of like it's not. I, I was gonna say that's kind of like an opportunity cost because since you're making mirror guy out of this ash, you can't use this ash for something else. I mean. What other resource in the game would you cut? Like, when I pitch a blue, you're giving up an opportunity cost because I'm casting this one card as opposed to using it to create, like, a rune chant with Grasp of the Arknight. Like, don't you never say that about any other resource? And it's like, there's no opportunity cost for using like a resource for like not casting or being able to cast other cards. But so, why are we evaluating like the for the resource of an ash? So. When you play Wounded Bull, you're spending two cards for eight. If you're assuming you're pitching a blue pick for it, you're spending two cards for eight. So that right. that card, that second card, that pitch card is being factored into the the cost of the Wounded Bull. So like you're you're spending two cards in your action point for eight points of damage. Right. Yeah, but you wouldn't then say, well, then you also have to factor in the opportunity cost of not activating uh the frost hat i forget its name right now the crown of uh cornet peak sorry yeah um not activating cornet peak you don't say well then you also have to take away the like the opportunity cost of not activating cornet peak when you cast moodable like that's so So, saying like you have to take away the opportunity cost of casting this dragon because it stops you from casting future dragons is weird to me so stating that you're spending two cards and your action point that that is that is kind of the opportunity cost like coronet peak costs one card in your action point versus wounded bull costs two cards in your action point so like 
when we okay. when we say I'm casting Mirror Guy, I'm spending one resource and the card for Mirror Guy and my Ash, my Dragon resource. And if instead of Mirror Guy, I cast Kyloria instead or something like, then you like you don't subtract like any value or, or anything, but you you are spending that cost, and that kind of needs to be. I guess you, I guess you kind of are subtracting. Like it goes into the value of the card. So like, I'm like trying to like this. Yeah, this is blowing my mind right now. Yeah, it's just I like every time I try to think back to like any other resource evaluation in the game, like, like, what about like a tunic resource, like. Do you have to factor in the opportunity cost of using your tunic resource now as opposed to like maybe you need it on this next turn cycle? So like it's one resource generation is not always worth one resource generation. I think one resource generation is worth one resource, but maybe you use your one resource to play like a what's the four power guardian attack called? Chokes like four power yeah. guardian yeah. attack. Yeah, you pitch a you use tunic and pitch a blue to play chokes. Eight power. Yeah, four, four cost, cost. Eight four power. Cost. Yeah. Sorry. Long day, <laughs> long podcast. So, <laughs> so you play your choke slam. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. This podcast is only forty minutes long, and whatever our listeners are watching. Right now. <laughs> That's true. We got a lot of a lot of things at the time. So the top one, the top one. So if you use that to play a choke slam, and then next turn you have a command and conquer plus a pummel and you wish you had your two day resource for that, then like you Does that take away the past value of your choke slam? It it doesn't. It doesn't. Okay. So So then why does the future value and opportunity of creating a dragon take away from the present value of creating a dragon? So you just kind of have to acknowledge the cost. Like Chokeslam costs for it, costs your tunic resource. It's not like that resource is free. That resource costs, it, it costs your tunic activation. So that's kind of like. Agreed. Yeah. So so when you're casting Mirror Guy, you're spending the cost of the Ash. It's gone. You're spending it. It's gone. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. If Mirror Guy. Yeah. So that's just a resource used. There's no. Yeah. So we don't need to bring in opportunity cost at all here. Okay. Okay. That's fine. There's always that opportunity cost for using your okay, resources. Cool. So this is probably not the best point to bring it up for the first time. Yeah. There, okay. There's always an opportunity cost to everything. I could be using my time right now, spending it with my wife and baby, but instead I've, I'm here having a podcast discussing opportunity costs with Michael Hamilton. You know, I have yeah, to weigh the yeah. pros and cons of that every time I get on, on this podcast. Yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so beer guy, six points of value. Doesn't cost your action point because your dragons have go again because you played your thing. So six points of value for a card, a resource, and an ash. And if mirror guy lives an extra turn, then you're probably going to get two more points of value out of it because it'll probably get to attack again with go again again, go again. This turn just like the previous turn yes so by default dragons value is usually going to be their power plus their toughness but 
sometimes they attack multiple times. Sometimes they have extra abilities like Chromias get generates an action point that can sometimes be worth extra. And then anytime they stay in play for multiple turns, they're worth even more than that because you just add how much they attack for each time they attack, basically, to how much value they generated over the course of the game. Um, the last thing is if a dragon gets popped by a popper, then its value just instead of being whatever it was, it just turned into one card from your opponent. So you spent a card and uh, however many resources to cast it. And a six ash. power card. And it trades for a Which single card. It might have some premium to it. It might not, depending on the matchup, right? Yeah. yeah. Like they can't trade. Yeah, so they can't trade any card for your dragon, but they can trade any six power card for it. So. Which six power plus so like in a, a deck like Phi where maybe they only have three poppers like you're actually getting you can say maybe your drag is actually accruing like some minor form of value because you're taking this very specific away resource away from like your opponent or this very specific card type from your opponent that they won't have access to later but against a deck like oldheim it's just like they have a million other poppers in their deck it's not it's not really doing much of anything at that point so yeah and I'd also encourage you to look at it on a hand for hand by hand basis rather than like a uh, amount of poppers in deck. So like if you play if your if your dragon gets popped against Phi and on their turn they wanted to go zero for three into sword into Phoenix Slam into Lava Burst, then like that command and conquer in their hand didn't really wasn't going to do anything basically. It was it's basically there just to block a dragon. Like they can use it offensively and they would probably be able to get some value out of it offensively, but like that's why it's in the deck is because it was using the pop of dragons. Yeah, but in circumstances where maybe they had a mopey hand and command and conquer would have actually been the best thing that they could have cobbled together, you are accruing like some kind of positive value by taking away your opponent its like ability to like function on their turn. But that came up more so against with like prism math kind of a thing when you were attacking with heralds because you were just attacking with um your herald but you weren't giving up your action point in order to do that because of phantasmal footsteps so you're just taking away this powerful card from your opponent's hand without but just trading one for one on your card on that level and then you could follow it up with an aura or another powerful card or some kind of action in order to kind of like bring the game down a level um and, and just slow it down but dromai doesn't really get that because every time Dromai's Phantasm stuff pops, I guess specifically dragons, their turn is just over and that they lose their action point. So you can't keep trying to trade or like push for further value on your turn after uh, exchanging one of your cards for a popper. And then the last kind of thing about getting popped is if you have multiple cards in your hand when your dragon gets popped, you lose your action point and you can't use these cards productively. Let's so maybe you can maybe you already have a card in arsenal and you have one more card left over in hand and your dragon gets popped then that card's probably just wasted so you're wasting a full extra card of value in addition to like your dragon not getting full value because it got popped so that's not something you can like calculate what the value of your hand is going to be going into it i guess it's like Actually, you kind of can. It's kind of similar to like the Dorinthia, where like this is the value of my hand if they don't pop anything, and this is the value if they do pop me. And you can kind of calculate each of those cases. Yeah. So. To be fair, I think this was a really 
like I don't know if this was like a good good episode in terms of like its quality, but I thought I think I value this conversation a lot because if we go all the way back to Coach Hamilton's top tips, like Coach Hamilton's top tips were just like look at your hand, evaluate to get the most resources out of it, and we were like yeah cool yeah basic cards we did the math we're doing it, and now we're like well now it's really contextual based on like what the value of your hand is, and it's hard to know whether or not you know what these cards are worth and you have to like evaluate like their different use cases and states so i guess like i this is kind of like what i was trying to get to the whole time and i finally got got we've we finally thanks to our lovely patron to the more i guess like nuances and like uh better definitions of like flesh and blood hand evaluations and like value so i don't know that's just Take that for what it's worth. Yeah. I, 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 I'm glad that at least you feel good about the episode. I'm like, I kind of think that it all ended up in a good place. And we talked about like some pretty weird cases, but I think we did kind of boil down how to evaluate some of these more complicated things. And hopefully this helps our listeners and viewers evaluate their hands and yeah yeah i would agree do you have any closing thoughts on uh the value of the episode or cards or life in general <laughs> or squeaky doors the opportunity cost everything <laughs> sometimes <laughs> you get squeaky doors and say it better <laughs> <laughs> well on that note Next time you're evaluating the opportunity cost in your life, always remember the opportunity cost of not minding your manners.